Welcome to Brand Appeal, where we talk about brand storytelling in the digital age. I'm your host, Shannon Peel, and today I talked with Ernie Sander about how experts can tell their stories to become thought leaders in the marketplace. We touched on how to define your story, where to tell your story, and how to create an expert brand if you want to be a speaker, author, or leader. Ernie spent a decade as an editor at the Wall Street Journal before working at digital media startups. Join us today to find out how to tell your brand story and become a thought leader. Hey, thank you so much for coming out today and talking to me on Brand Appeal. I just want to know, what is it that you want to be known for? I want to be known for helping people communicate more effectively, for challenging themselves in new ways, thinking more creatively about how they communicate. I think people are intimidated by the idea of communicating, and yet it's incredibly important and can unlock all kinds of potential. So I want to help people uh, have more confidence and do it more effectively. That's extremely important. Well, since I work in the same field. <laughs> I would, it would be weird if you didn't think it was important. Exactly. So let's talk about that because we do do a lot of the same things. And it's always great talking to people who work in the industry. One, because we give so much information to listeners that they walk away with great ideas and actionable things that they can do. But also, it's great insight for both of us. Now, you also have a podcast, and I've listened to it, and you had some interesting people on there. Your friend, my goodness, I think I would hit him in the nose, too, if he phone and ran. The podcast is about our most important communications moments, the most important conversations and written interchanges in our lives. Talking about James King, his was the first example of a physical communication that we had on the show. He just to recap for the listeners, he's a bull friend who has this light prank that he pulls on people in where, because they, they often think that there's a lot of crime in New York. He will, if he sees them taking a selfie, he'll come up and say, hey, do you want me to take your picture? And after he takes their picture, he'll make a motion as if he's gonna run off with their camera, with their phone. But he of course turns around and gives it back to them. And then usually everybody laughs about it. And in this particular case, that's not what happened. This guy, it was an ex-Marine and he tackled him and punched him in the face. He thought he was literally taking his phone. Once everybody realized that this was all just a joke gone wrong, they all were apologizing back and forth to each other. And then they went and got a beer together and have since become sort of friends. It was, I had so many emotions listening to the story. I thought it was half funny, half bizarre, half alarming, all kinds of things. Yes. I think a lot of people probably would have punched him in the face and he to his credit, recognize that if you pull a prank like this and you do things like this, you you open yourselves up to people not getting in and being punched in the face. And he totally understood he didn't have any bear any grudges towards this other guy. I liked the story because it was sort of about how you rebound from communication mm-hmm. that doesn't go quite as planned. Resilience, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Podcasting. Now, as you know, you're here, so I've got one as well. I know it's a lot of work because you got to go, you got to find people to be on your podcast. You have to spend some time recording it. A lot of podcasters will spend some time researching beforehand. I happen to not do that. I enjoy the process of learning about people in the process of the podcast. Then there's the editing, which can take three times as long to edit something that it does to record it. So how do you get it all done? I'm a little blessed because I work at a company that helps me with a bunch of it. I feel guilty saying this to you because I'm sure you do all this yourself and put hours and hours into it. I'm a little embarrassed to admit that I have some help on the production. 
a little bit of help, not so much finding guests, but booking people once I've decided who I want on the show. And then I have a little bit of help on social. I'm fortunate and I totally hear what you're saying. Everybody wants to have a podcast until you realize how much work it is. And then you realize like you do 10 episodes and you go, this is fun, but A, it's a lot of work. And then B, you know, anybody can start a podcast, but actually getting, building an audience for it and building a feedback loop, just when it gets really fun, when more people are listening to it and there's more engagement, that's a whole nother step, which we can talk more about too. But I totally hear you. You're hundred percent right. It's, it's a lot of work. It is a lot of work. And I'm so jealous. <laughs> I knew I is, shouldn't have said that. It's just me, myself, and I, but that's the way that it is right now. But I can't wait until I can hire somebody and say, hey, look it, this is your job. If it is all you doing it, I'm curious to ask, how many hours a week does it take you to do the whole thing? Find the guest, book the guest, record it, edit it, share it. How long? Oh, I found platforms that match up guests and podcasts. So finding people was easy. And I found so many people, uh, that's why I'm doing 100 episodes in 100 days. Now, it's the editing that takes all the time. It can take up to three hours to edit a one-hour interview. And then I got to write the copy for all the episodes and upload them into the podcast hosting platform. Then comes the promotion piece where I need to write up a blog post, embed the audio, the video files with links to your platform. Got to make sure listeners can see you and create the social media graphics, write the copy, post on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. It can take four hours, give or take. And well, you know, I mean, the podcast is only one platform that I'm building. What I'm building is different platforms for people to come and share their brand stories and build out their digital footprint. That's where my focus is going. I just want to build something that's a little bit more lasting Mm. and that has my brand on it. So that's why I have the blog, I have digital magazines, still have the book publishing, book writing and publishing, and now now I have this podcast. So it all kind of fits in together. You have an empire. I'm building an empire. A one-person empire. (laughs) It gets interesting when you start to do all these different things and you realize the differences among these media, what works. And it really does. There's different different strokes for different folks and different things work for different kinds of messaging and different kinds of people. And it's fascinating when you sort of start to drill down into the different media. Exactly. I mean, this all started with one client who wanted to write a book. So that went from that, then it went to, okay, well, now I've got to promote this book. So I started creating a digital magazine and it was about bringing in the multi- but it was only getting to like 2,000 people would open up and read it. It's like, okay, well, that's a lot of work for that. Started going back to the blog. So instead of the blog being an afterthought, I made the blog more important and was able to increase my readership by four times within three months. Right. Then came, of course, the, the podcast at the same time, which has helped to increase reach. Uh, And that's the big thing. Because when you're building out your digital footprint, you have to map it out and you have to know exactly where you are and what you're doing. And in my opinion, it's great that you have a podcast and whether it's a podcast, a blog, a magazine, a book, any of those things that I'm talking about, that's the interest piece of your brand funnel. And you have to have this interest piece that people can go to, to find out more about you. Right. You've really hit the nail on the head, I think. 
when you start to build the different pieces of the puzzle together and you think about that journey of how people get into one and then get a taste of it and then get funneled into another piece of it and then get more interested and then get more good. And that's when it starts to get really interesting. It's time consuming and it's a real job. It's not, it's different. It's one thing to do something as a labor of love. It's another, when you start to really think about building audience, it's very strategic and it's time consuming. And so I, I think you're, you're onto it. And that's kind of where I am with the podcast and I'm really enjoying it, but I need to, the next steps are what you're, what you've already done, which is mm -hmm. get the blog going, get the show notes, build them into blog posts, build a YouTube channel. If you want to use the video too, and just think about how do people move around your content in different ways. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating that you've done that. Well, I, I really believe that you have to speak to people in the way that they like to consume content. Right. It's not about what, I mean, a piece of it is about what you enjoy doing. You're not going to do a blog if you don't like writing. You're not going to do a podcast if you don't like the sound of your voice. You're really not going to do video if you don't like the way you look. <laughs> so, um, but all of these pieces do need to be edited. They do need work. I mean, yes, I do take the video. I put it on my website. I only put it on my website because until I can hire someone, it's just raw and it's too raw for me to put it out there. And that is my level of quality when it comes to branding. Right. Well, and I think that you hear so much about podcasting that there's a lot of, if the quality is too low and it's off-putting and there's all kinds of gaps and you can't hear the people, it sounds like somebody's talking in a cave or whatever, that turns people off really quickly. And so even if the content is great, there's sort of a minimum production level that you have to commit to so that the quality or the lack of it doesn't become a distraction to people and an excuse to turn off either yourself or hire somebody to do some kind of production so that it's not, yeah, some people who are famous can get away with something totally raw. People just will forgive them. But for people who are newer to it or don't have quite that profile, they're just not as forgiving that there's a ton of content out there and people are looking to move on. They have all kinds of recommendations from friends. You have to hook them. You kind of get a moment to grab them and take your half hour, hour a week with them on your podcast or whatever on your video series. And if you lose it, you lose it. You mm -hmm. You're right. It is because you got to think about what people are doing on the platform. So if I'm going to YouTube, I'm probably looking to get entertained. So you have to be entertaining. If I'm listening to a podcast, I probably just want some background noise and maybe to learn something along the way or just do want something that I can do while I'm driving and feel like I've been productive. That's why the educational right. piece of a podcast is so important. When you're looking at a book, you're looking for the how, you're looking for the, and a blog, you're just looking for some information. I tell people when you're on social media, when you're picking a social media platform, you have to think the same way. Because if I'm on LinkedIn, chances are I'm looking for something specific. If I'm on Facebook, I'm looking for something different. So you have to talk to people where they are in how they are in where their mindset is at that time. No, I think that's right. And I think we were saying earlier, it gets interesting to you where you're on, you know, three, four, five different platforms. And I think that's, I should also add that I think that there's a little bit of a danger of spreading yourself so thin and sort of commodity, not spreading yourself thin, you're not getting any sleep at night. I don't mean that so much, but more that you're, you have a somewhat commoditized product yeah. that's kind of similar across platforms. And so it, to your point, you're not really differentiating the product based on what the audience does on that platform. And, and, and maybe when you step back and think about it, 
what you're doing doesn't really lend itself to X or Y platform. And so the question becomes like, do you really want to spend additional time on X or Y platform? Or do you want to double down on Z platform, which is actually really appropriate for you, do a better job with it, even if you're only on one or two places, that's more kind of native to what you do. And, and I think that there's a danger of thinking, you look at all these social platforms, you say, okay, I've got to be there. I got to be there. And so there's no magic to being there if you're not doing anything with it or, or you don't really belong. It's not like when you go to the bar, everybody says, okay, are you on these six platforms? It's you kind of go there because there's something that can be built there and there's a connection that can happen there. I think there's no, there's no shame in saying, you know what, I'm going to focus on Twitter or I'm going to focus on LinkedIn or yeah. I'm just, my product's not right for those other places. I totally agree with you. I believe that's such an integral part of the mapping out your digital footprint is understanding where where do you need to be. Right. Now, I'm going to switch gears here a little bit because I'm really curious about your day job. What is it that you do to help people? That's a good, my kids ask me the same thing. And I, don't, I don't know if I've explained it to them yet, but I work at a super interesting agency, a communications agency called Pioneer and Collective. And we work with people in leadership positions, um, a lot of executives, but also coaches and authors and people across industries who are a thought leadership firm and community. And by thought leadership, I mean kind of communication broadly, speaking, social media, writing, podcasting, all that stuff. And we sort of help them. These are really successful people who want to note what they know and what they've done and also amplify it. And so we help them do that. And it's interesting, like you sort of assume that people who who are really accomplished, who have senior titles, who are really respected, that they have a brand and a footprint that just goes along with it. And what you realize is that only comes from building it. You could be super successful and not everybody in the world knows who you are. People in your company, of course, know who you are. People in your industry know who you are. They also may not really know who you are, right? Because you may have been at this conference focused on some narrow issue talking about this or another conference talking about that very specific issue. What really makes you, you? Why are you doing what you're doing? What have you learned from what you're doing? What challenges have you been through? What failures have you had that have shaped you? Nobody knows that stuff unless you tell them that stuff. We do a lot of story design, just really backing the whole thing up and thinking with people about, okay, let's really get to know you. Let's like inventory your whole life and career. And then let's figure out what are the themes that pop in your life and how are we going to tell those stories? Where are the anecdotes? Where are the proof points? All that stuff. How can we bring this stuff alive? So that's what we do. People, it's a membership organization. So they join in there with us for a year, hopefully longer, two, three years more. And we work with them over that year to kind of shape that journey, build those pieces of the, the brand and their PR and the communications for them, with them. You know, PR is such a huge piece of the brand storytelling funnel as well, because when you go out and get that PR in on different platforms, what that gives you is brand credibility. And social media doesn't really give you that brand credibility. How important is brand credibility for thought leaders? I think it's really important. And I think I think a lot of people are, are trained in business to think, I'm going to put a PowerPoint together. I'm going to a lot of the conventional business kinds of communication, kinds of things you would use Marshall if you were going to invest money in a certain industry, or you were going to buy another company, or you were going to expand here. Like the way that you make a business case for that kind of stuff, I think it's worked pretty well for a long time. But 
that's not the way you really build a brand, right? The way, you, and then I'm talking here about a personal brand. I'm, we don't really work with business brands. We just work with individuals. The way you connect with people is through stories, helping people this list of what makes you different and what's the essence of you and how do you bring that stuff alive? You can do it in lots of different ways. You know, we can, you can do it in the ways that we're doing it here or with podcasting. You can do it speaking, public speaking. You can do it by writing a piece of thought leadership. They all kind of have their place. I, I think social is really essential to people. I think it's part of the way that so many people receive and, and kind of trade information and build relationships with each other these days. Mm -hmm. Social can either be done in a really quick hit way where there's a lot of congratulating people for things or talking about your latest promotion and all that's totally fine, but that's not brand building. That's just participating in like the daily churn of social or they consider that to be just like breathing on social, not actually exercising on social. Mm -hmm. And so the rules of social, what do you want to say and how are you going to say it? What do you want people to take away? Who are you trying to reach? All of those kinds of questions still need to be asked on social. If you want to do something a little more deep, if you want to get people to engage with what you're doing, you have to think about what's going to provoke a reaction. And I don't, when I say provoke, I don't mean in a manipulative way. I mean, what's going to get people to want to participate in what you're talking about. So we help them kind of think about what works in different places. And again, Lots of leaders are more or less comfortable with them. Some people love to speak publicly, some don't. Some people love social, some don't. Some people really like to write. So we kind of play to the areas that they most want to participate in and then kind of really work with them to, to build out their footprint in those places. When I think about the speaking thing, because I have a client who is just coming out of a great international CEO position and is transitioning to doing his own thing. He used to be in the speaking circuit. He's like, oh, I want to do that again. And I'm like, okay, but that's changed. How has it changed over COVID? Well, it's really interesting. And I think it's in flux a little bit. First, there were conferences were canceled. Then they started to come back. Then they, they were virtual. Now there's some hybrid. Now we're starting to see some places that are say, we're not hybrid at all anymore. We're full on. You either come or you don't come. That's kind of interesting because in addition to the some people's hesitation about public speaking if they have it there's also the whole COVID thing layered on the back and being in person but on the flip side you know hybrids or virtual is still an option with a lot of places if you like being in the room with other people and looking out and feeling like you're connecting with those people you have to ask yourself sure i can do another zoom presentation but am i gonna get excited about it am i do is it gonna light me up there's a lot going on um, i think we're moving back towards a world in which We'll have conferences just like we did. We may have a virtual track too all the time for people who either don't feel comfortable or some companies have realized it's really fascinating that their virtual participation was greater than their in-person participation. And so they're saying, we're not gonna let the virtual piece go yet. We're, we'll have, maybe we'll have a new conference that's just virtual because it's so convenient for people that just yeah. hop on Zoom. There's a lot going on. It's gonna be fascinating to see how it all shakes out. Well, yeah, because you can have more people show up live alone. So I've, as I was joining a lot of these conferences, just so I could have something playing in the background. Same thing as, you know, you do with a podcast, just makes it sound like somebody's here. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I know it's pathetic. <laughs> no, I hear you. I hear you. It gets quiet sometimes. I, I know what you're talking about. So I was joining these things and one of them was called Thrive and it was this big conference and they did this vir virtual piece. They had so many people like from around the world that were there virtually and only a handful of people in person because of the rules and regulations that were in place in Las Vegas at the time. So they weren't making the money that they were making before. Mm. And at the end of the event, he said, we're not doing it again in person. 
And then he started talking about the metaverse and how they're going to take that into the metaverse. I mean, I've been in and out of the metaverse programs for years because they this is nothing new. I don't mm. know why they're all of a sudden saying, hey, this is this new thing. It's it's not new. I find it very disconnecting. I don't enjoy my time talking to people or even watching some avatar give a speech. Yeah. What's your thought on that? I agree. And I think uh, maybe I'm old school. I've been to as many boring conferences as the next person, but I like the process of being there and being able to see people and being able to say hi to people and ask questions and all that. And I think if we're going to have the virtual conference piece continue and be a part of our future, which I think it will, it'll be really interesting to see how people kind of in invigorate that and make that not a paler version of the real thing. I totally can imagine that it could be a really cool experience for people, particularly people who like virtual experiences. Either they like the convenience of it or they, just, they realize that you can do a lot more tech-driven things virtually than you could in person. And they're kind of excited by that. I'm totally open to the idea that there could be a really neat virtual experience that's really different than any conference you've ever been to. At this point, I'm with you. I, even if it requires a little bit of travel and it requires me to wear a mask uh, in the future, hopefully it won't, then I like the in-person piece of like, get you out of the house. Like, who knows who you're going to meet? I'm one of those people. Conferences are more than just going and listening to a speaker. Right. And you don't get that in the virtual. I mean, I've spent a lot of time in these virtual conferences, even before, even before COVID, because, well, let's face it, they were free. Well, I've, I've had conversations with, with a friend who spends a lot of time in the virtual world. When I say that, you know, Second Life and all kinds of places. And I've asked her, you know, do you have a lot of virtual relationships that turn into in-person relationships. And she says, yes. And, you know, I think one has this image that virtual relationships always stay virtual. They can be really important if you find the right virtual relationships. But she has said that they kind of move back and forth between you can meet someone in a virtual setting, you go and visit them in San Francisco, you sleep on their couch. If there is some back and forth between those, and you actually get a chance to see that person in real life and have a meal with them, take a trip, whatever, then I think it becomes a, a feeder for social networking or for relationship building. And that's cool if that happens. Yeah, no, that's cool. That would be great. I don't know if it's my, I don't know. Cause I've been in second world over a decade ago. Yeah. And I don't know if it's just because you didn't know who you were talking to or, okay. I think it's just me because I'm the kind of person that I would have no problem standing up in front of 5,000 people with to give a presentation or a speech that is totally not prepared. Mm, I'll just wow, jump up there and right? Not a problem. Ask me to walk into a room with 10 to 20 people I don't know and figure out who to talk to, panic attack. That is so interesting. It's just so different, right? So once the ice gets broken with those 10 to 20 people, you oh. know, like you can hold the room, tell jokes, whatever, but that's so interesting. Usually you think of that confidence in a room would apply to any situation, people you know. If you have that confidence to stand up in front of 5,000 people, which almost no one does, then you would just think you're invincible, but that's so interesting. The, for me personally, it completely depends on the permission. If someone goes, hey, Shannon, our speaker didn't show up. We need someone to talk about this topic. Can you do it? I'll be like all over it. But for me to walk into a room where I don't know anyone, I get just anxious. It sounds really weird. It really does. I know because it doesn't make any sense. I talk to people in grocery store lines and coffee shops. But maybe I guess because if everybody's in the room, like for the same reason, there's something staged about it a little bit that mm. feels a little awkward. I don't know. Networking groups always just don't, 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 don't do it for you. Grocery store line. 
there's someone in front of me and someone behind me and I start strike up a conversation. It's really easy because it's, it, it's that one. Right. Okay. Who even wants to talk to me? I mean, mm-hmm. really, <laughs> <laughs> you know, there is that confidence piece. I think that it, it really does come down to a confidence piece. So what's your secret for not, not getting rattled at all in front of 5,000 people or 200 people or whatever, if you're speaking spontaneously, what's the message that you tell yourself, you know, the way most people would be overthinking it in their head saying, what if I sound stupid? What if I forget what I was going to say? What, like all the voices that can talk to you, right? You just don't have any of those. No, I don't have any of those. Once again, I think it's confidence. And because I started very young, well, not very young. I started in my teens. Doing public speaking. Yeah. Yeah. No. Communications medium, your most comfortable public speaking, more than writing, more than. Oh no, I'm, I'm a writer. I, I wrote two novels. I I write on blog posts. I write articles for my magazine. You do it. Yeah, I can do all that. That's not an, not an issue for me at all. That's also unusual because usually people are, I feel comfortable doing this, but less comfortable doing that. People will tell you they're comfortable speaking, but they aren't comfortable writing and writing is a skill. Speaking is a skill obviously too, but for some reason people are walking around talking and giving smaller talks and presentations for a lot of their life. Writing an 800,000 word piece with like a beginning and a middle and an end and has a point and doesn't, if you've been doing it for a long time as you have, it doesn't seem that complicated, but for people who don't exercise that muscle at all, I think it seems really foreign. Yeah. Yeah. Again, not writing an email, we're checking out a piece that's, that has some length to it. It has some, has a purpose to it. Well, um, I've written two novels, so I think I can write a lot. Problem. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so once again, it's something I started doing when I was younger. I know I didn't think I could make any money at it, do a lot of it. I just did it kind of here and there. And then when at 40, I just said, screw it. Let me try to make yeah. some money at this. Yeah. The book publishing business is a whole nother interesting space. And all these options now for self-publishing. So you probably know all about these worlds. It used to be that you had to go send hundreds of letters out to book, right, to book publishers. And now if you say to yourself as you did, screw it, I'm just going to write my books. There's nothing stopping you from writing it. No one's going to tell you yes or no. You, it's, it's you sitting down and writing it. And then the question becomes, how much money do I want to spend to get professionals to help me do this, whether it's editors or designers, or whether I want somebody to help market the book, or, or am I going to just totally DIY it? But there's hybrid models where you basically get small army of people that can help you Mm -hmm. everything from again write it to edit it to package it to sell it and you're just kind of dictating it and well yeah because that's what i did for for this one like yeah so he dictated and then i it's his words right it's just i did all the work with all the writing and then all the layouts i did and the cover and the marketing and getting it published on Amazon. But we didn't really take it any further than that. Well, then there's a whole art getting like rising up the charts on Amazon. And as with everything else, there's like these specialists who are yeah. super knowledgeable about. I am so against gaming the system yeah. that I'm not the one to do it. Like, I, I know I'm not the one to go and say, hey, let's go game All Amazon purchase. and get the best selling badge because then best-selling badge has no value in my opinion yeah what you've done is actually disrespectful to those who who do deserve the best-selling badge um but there are games there are people that you can play that will go and do the whole game thing get you i mean we did that with another book yeah he sold a lot right at the beginning got the reviews and it's kind of petered out because if you don't continue with it I mean, books are good for credibility. 
They're good for having something to sell when you're out speaking gigs. If you expect to make a bunch of money, a million dollars on your book, you better be working with one of the big guys because they're the only ones that can get it there. You raise a great point about kind of figuring out why you're writing a book. And I'm sure you talk to your clients about this. If somebody's writing it just because it's a personal story, or it's a memoir, and they just want to get it out there for posterity, that's totally fine. Mm-hmm. If they want to get it out there because they think it's going to drive their speaking fees or double their speaking fees, that's fine. But if they Read, they've read the stories about people getting rich writing books, then they need to, they probably need to read a few more stories and find out how the other half lives or the other 95%. It's a complicated thing, but it, but as long as you sort of know why you're doing it, and then you're, again, like everything else with content, the strategy kind of flows into mm-hmm. purpose. You hear good examples of people that use books really strategically to help leverage other parts of their training business or speaking business. Mm-hmm. I think it can be really helpful that way. I'm sure you've worked with people like that. Mainly what you just said there, leveraging your speaking business, leveraging your coaching business. When you have that book, it gives you the credibility. People think, wow, if you know enough to fill a book, that's enough. Right. You're worth it. Yeah. 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 How, how long does it take you to put a book together? Like this one you're talking about beginning to end. I worked seven, seven months on that one. And you did all the all the work yourself, all the everything. That's a lot. You you have a lot of experience doing everything. Yes, I have a lot of experience doing everything. No one's going to accuse you of being above it or, like, <laughs> you know, handing all the pieces out to to your minions. No one's going. No, I don't use minions. I don't have people in India. <laughs> Which, what part of it do you like the most? It sounds like you do similar things. Work on different kinds of content for different kinds of clients. Do you enjoy like the writing part the most? Do you enjoy the um, I enjoy the strategy piece. Let's yeah. strategize and figure out how we're going to do this. I can't say that there's one thing I enjoy more than another because like, I get such a rush when I get a client on a podcast or interviewed in a article. I've been doing that more for myself lately, which is really kind of cool. That's great. The book, I mean, yeah, it's really kind of cool to say, hey, look, I'm the publisher on it. That's awesome. So building the platforms, you know, but building the platforms that people can come and tell their brand stories on and I think is where my passion lies right now. I think that the most valuable help, I mean, I'm biased a little because I I am a strategist like you, but I do feel like there's a lot of really helpful stuff that happens kind of up front where you kind of help orient people to what those stories are. Because once you sort of figure out what matters and what doesn't matter, you separate the wheat from the chaff a little bit, then those pieces of content, those stories become usable in 360 degrees, right? You're going to go on a podcast, you're going to use one of those stories, or you're going to understand yourself, you're going to be able to talk about yourself more. If you decide you're going to write a piece, you can use those in the pieces. I think of them as kind of modules. Like once you do that kind of foundational work at the beginning, you're kind of understanding your themes and understanding what personal stories you can tell and all that stuff. And I hear this back from clients that they just you feel so much more equipped when you have these opportunities. If you get invited on a podcast and and you're kind of flailing around because you're not really sure what you want to say, what frustrated you, but if you've done the pre-thought and then you go on the podcast, it's like, it's a rush. It's super Mm -hmm. fun to talk about it when you feel ready to talk about it. That early work that you're talking about. And I think that's where people get confused to sort of, they have all this stuff swirling around in their head and it becomes overwhelming. They're not really sure what to focus on. I've got a workbook that I give my clients to work through. Because if you write your story first, then you know what to say when somebody asks you the question. Right, right. It's that simple. No, I totally agree. There's a guy that is a, a neurologist. He talks about listening, kind of how he learned. He was training to be a doctor mm-hmm. and he trained to be a psychiatrist, actually. And he was prescribing medications to people and telling them they needed to change their behavior in this way or that way. And 
he said people weren't really listening to him. I'm not sure why, but, and so he went to his supervisor in a fellowship and he went to the director of the fellowship. He said, people aren't really following this advice much. And the fellowship director said, sometimes you don't need to prescribe drugs to people. Sometimes being a really active, engaged listener Mm -hmm. is what people need. That's kind of unlocked in him this whole you know, he's on, gone on to do all this research that shows that having access to a good listener like literally changes your brain composition. And so what we're talking about here about strategy and talking to people and listening to their stories and understanding, helping sort through their stories, being an active participant in helping to shape those stories. You can understand when you talk to people like that, the power of that for people. Mm-hmm. They just feel much more equipped when they have a partner to process this stuff kind of with. Hopefully someone who knows how to listen a little bit. That's a hard thing to find. It is. Well, and I think listening for a lot of people like means just be quiet while the other person's talking. But there's, of course, you know, eight or 10 other different dimensions of are you not getting distracted? Are you asking good questions? That's the big um, one are, right there. Are you not being too judgmental? Mm-hmm. You know, it's easy to get really prescriptive and go like, well, I know what your problem is. You just got to do whatever. And like, there's a real art. We have all have friends who are really good at it. We go to them when we have problems, right? And, and then they end up being the one person that everyone goes to that has problems. And then when their life falls apart, they're kind of screwed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Everyone's kind of screwed because that person's no longer listening. <laughs> they don't, exactly, they're burnt out. Because I've been there, right? So when my life fell apart, I didn't have anyone to go talk to. And I, you know, people aren't equipped to listen. So just because they come into you and talk to you about their problems and you ask them questions and you help them to see things different ways, doesn't mean that you can find those people for yourself. Yeah. I think a lot of times people expect people to be that. Oh, I expect that person to be that way for me. And they get disappointed when that person isn't. And then those relationships fall apart. So listening is a skill that you have to value. And if you don't have that value, then it's not going to work. This is so important to be a good listener. He's a super interesting kind of hotshot doctor, but you hear a lot of people talk about healthcare and the healthcare system and how patients not the center of the care anymore. This doctor here and that doctor over there and this hospital group there and nobody's talking to each other. And so you don't really know like who your point person is. Back in the day, you had like a family doctor and everything got routed through the family doctor. Now you have all these army of specialists. So it's sort of interesting to hear him talk about it in a medical context. He does these things with patients. So many people are trying to fix problems for people, particularly doctors. That's kind of what they're trained to do. And he really has learned how to talk to people and not fix their problems and Mm -hmm. validate. Like he's talked about people who come in and they have ailments that have no medical basis, like, like can't see out of their eye, but they, Uh, but there's no physical reason for that to be happening. There's no physical reason. But instead of saying we did the test and there's no problem, you don't need to worry about it. Like that's not what you say to people because they can't see out of their eye. So they, they are worrying about it. I think it's sort of fascinating and a great life skill to figure out how to not just talk at people, but figure out how to talk with people about stuff. And even things that you're like, not quite sure what to say or how to act. Super interesting guy. And be able to provide the feedback that will help them to heal. And that's a big piece as well. Exactly. Particularly if the healing is emotional. We're trying to figure out what was the trigger of that sight being lost. He wrote a memoir and he was saying that writing the memoir and sort of learning about listening skills kind of made him think about the relationship between being an editor and being a journalist where you're kind of listening to all this stuff, kind of like deciding what stories to tell, yeah, made him think about what he was trying to do when he was being a doctor, was parroting back the stuff that really matters. It's sort of interesting connections that he's developing. You have to listen in what you do. And that's why listening is so important for what you do, because you are having to help people tell their story. And the only way that you can pull that story out 
is to ask the right questions. Right. So what do you start with? What question do you start with? We first start by asking them more about their goals. And okay, so mm-hmm. if you're looking back a year from now, like what do you what do you want to have happened? What would you say? What you look back and go, that was really successful. So we kind of, we do some of that. But then we really just start the clock kind of chronologically. We'll say to them, tell us about your life. Start from the very beginning and just like take us through. And then I'm a pretty curious person, have you been a journalist? So I have to watch myself that I don't stop them every five minutes, but I try to like that medium, that balance of really listening to what they're saying, but also stopping them when I hear something and drilling down on it, they might be taking me through, you know, I went to, I grew up here, I went to high school. Then I'll say like, tell me about high school. What was high school like? What were you interested in? What were your friends like? Whatever. And you find stuff when you stop people a little bit. And if, and you know, if you're not finding stuff, you don't need to ask five more questions, but it's that I enjoy learning, but I also think you really get a ton of the founder of the company talks about slowing down to speed up, Yeah, which is this idea of when they come in, when members come in, we strip things down so that they can then accelerate their impact. Mm -hmm. We figure out what their stories are. But I think it's true when you're talking to people too, is you sort of slow the whole thing down. Like, let's break it up. Okay. You're talking about your high school. Then you go on and they might talk about their career and they might tell you tons of detail about every job, but they haven't really told you like why any they're stories. doing what they're doing. They haven't told you any stories. They haven't told you any themes in their career or so they can be going fast, they can be going slow, but they have a kind of way of talking about it. And that's kind of, I think what we do is we we try to arm people with a different way of thinking about their professional life and their, yeah. a little, little bit to some degree their personal life too, so that it, it jumps a little bit more. Yeah, I start with their values. Interesting. Because it's important to know one, what their values are. Well, plus I'm usually telling value-based brand stories. Yeah. But it's more than that. It's like, okay, so to define that word for me, what does that mean right. to you? Okay. Now tell me time when you exemplify that value in your life. And then it's like, okay, so where did you get that value from? Did your parents have that value? Did your grandparents have right. that value? Is this an intergenerational value? And then I'd convolutedly go through their life. <laughs> so. Well, And I think that's really interesting. This what I find is a lot of people, they'll say something instead of elaborating on that by telling you why or how or whatever, they'll just find 10 different ways to rephrase that. You say, what's your values? And they'll say like, I care a lot about people. They'll say, well, you know, I think people are really essential and you can't do anything without people. And, you know, I've worked with a lot of people and they're all really great and they, you need them. And, and you'd be like, no, but illustrate that for me. Right. And yeah. so that's, I think a lot of people aren't used to talking of statement, proof point, statement, like show me right that the whole the whole show me don't tell me thing but it's people are so used to telling because that works in 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 enough settings that no one's ever really called them on it but the showing is so much more effective you can't just do the showing i can't just go around telling stories like i need to figure out what the stories add up to and i need to like introduce the stories in a way to package those things for people so they can understand i don't have to but it's more effective that way but the the headline statements without the the colorful anecdotes without the illustrations and it doesn't all have to be some gripping story from when i was a kid or whatever it could be an interesting statistic but you need to be able to tell people the the what and then the how and the why and i think it's 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 not a training that everybody has no and, and it's, and it's hard uncomfortable to show. for people it's yeah. hard to show because as a novelist like novelists are told show the story don't tell the story right so how do you show a story and you know my first novel i really took that to heart i did things like just put in the information. They were in the school parking lot. I didn't describe the parking lot. 
I allowed the reader to fill in those gaps with their own idea of what a parking lot looks like, with their own idea of what those things that didn't matter were all about guiding the reader to, to imagine them themselves. And I think that process helped me learn how to structure things in a show. Plus, I'm a visual artist. Right. Like, I do a lot of visual storytelling as well. Those animated videos. <laughs> those are cool. <laughs> yeah. So everything that you can do to visually storytell. Storytelling is an art. How do you train people to tell stories or when, what they're doing? So we have a company of about 10 people, and then we work with a lot of partners who are really good at pieces of what we do. So they might be story design coaches, or they might be speaking coaches, or they might be influencers. And mm -hmm. we pull those people in for several sessions, and then they go away, and they may come back later on or whatever. As a strategist, I'm sort of guiding that year-long yeah. journey for the member, and then we pull other people in. It's really interesting because we do a lot of just tell me your story, let's record it, and then let, let's break it apart. Yeah. You make up the scenario or maybe the scenario is real. Okay. Your client pitches. Okay. Let's say you got a new client. You have two and a half minutes to pitch. Let's go. And then you start pitching. And then what you realize is that a lot of times what should be the beginning is at the end, or, and so, but, it, but they get it. And like you, we work with one coach. We spend an hour. We do this two, three times, two, three takes. And by the end of it, it's radically different. And they're just kind of, oh my God, I see that what I wanted to say was either not there was buried. And I was starting off really slow. I wasn't really making the point that I wanted. And they felt really comfortable saying what they were saying, but it wasn't constructed for impact. Yeah. And so once you start to pull it apart and you, you start to ask them some questions and then you say, well, okay, why didn't you say that? And they, right. So you just to start to deconstruct a little bit and you start to interview them about, we're not recording anymore. Let's just talk this through. Yeah. And they say different things when they're talking it through than they do when they're being recorded. So something about the art of recording puts them into this pitch mode, which yeah. is different than the story mode that they need to be in. It's really fascinating. Yeah. My kids say, mom, why are you using your telephone voice? <laughs> oh, that's funny. For a part of their, their lives, I worked in inside sales. I was a single mom. So we lived in a two bedroom apartment. So they would hear me working all the time. Mom, why does your voice sound like that? <laughs> you know, it's just not the way much you can work. do about it. There's not yeah. much you can do about it. That's my professional voice. It just changes when I'm talking about something professional. <laughs> it, it's just the way it is. He, my son's the one that encouraged me to do the podcast at the beginning. How old is he? He's 23. So I would, I would love to do a podcast with him called oh, Conversations with My Son. His way of thinking is amazing, but there's no way he's going to do it with mom. No, no. You've got the telephone voice. No one wants to listen to that. You just got to learn how to have your regular voice. Now, Ernie, we're coming up on the hour and oh, no. I really hate this because I am just loving this conversation. Oh, me too. I knew I would. I had this feeling that talking to you would be the highlight of my day. I want to thank you very much, but I would like to ask if you'd like to come back on sometime. I'd love to. This has been so much fun. Perfect. That would be great. Thank you so much. Thank for you for having on. me. It was, a, it was a blast. Yeah. And I look forward to having you back again. I can't wait to have Ernie back on Brand Appeal to continue this discussion about how to help you be known as a thought leader. To learn more, drop by Ernie's podcast, You Said What? on your favorite podcast player. Listener, I'd love to know what you learned from this podcast. Stop in at marketappeal.com and drop into the community under members in the menu to talk about this episode and brand storytelling. I'd like to ask you for a favor. A, not a big favor, just a little favor. If you like Brand Appeal, please take a moment to leave a review on your favorite podcast player and share this podcast with someone you know who is developing their brand story. They'll thank you. If you know a brand storyteller, 
who would be perfect for the Brand Appeal podcast, send them a link to the podcast and tell them to drop by marketappeal.com to contact me about how to be on the show. Thank you for listening today. Peel out.